rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So I think that this is going to be one of our Richard and Eric disagree episodes based on some texting we were doing, but I'm really glad to have watched The Unnatural because now I know that I I, I was worried I was not going to experience the X-Files jumping the shark because, to me, this is the moment. I think that this episode is better than it has any right to be, <laughs> and I enjoy it a lot. I, I, I can see, and I, and I can see it being the mood— uh, certainly it didn't work it for me and I don't know. It's a baseball episode. I, I'm not into baseball and I think a big part of our discussion today is going to be why I loved baseball in DS9 and did not like it in the X-Files, but I, 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 I why do you like this episode? How about that? You know, I, I, I don't know if I can articulate why I like this episode, but of well, course then you're it's a my bad job <laughs> as a serious podcaster to do so. I mean, a lot of it is due to the fact that a David Duchovny written and directed episode is, I think, much better than it has any right to be, especially considering that the last episode that he had any story credit into uh, The Field Where I Died was, charitably speaking, an interesting mess. David Duchovny is a weird dude, right? Yeah. And I think that I like the X-Files when it swings for the fences, to to borrow an, an analogy that is related to this episode. And this episode swings for the fucking fences. You know, it's it's very odd. It's kind of ridiculous. But you can't fault the quality of the performances. You can't fault the look of this thing. I think it looks amazing. And... Does the actual story go anywhere? I don't know. Not really, right? And I think it raises a lot of questions surrounding the reality of the X-Files. But I don't care. Like, it's just so batshit crazy, and I have to respect it for that reason. No, and, and you know something? I don't agree with you, but I have said pretty much that exact thing about a lot of episodes. Like... For whatever reason, this is your brand of camp, and it's hitting you, and it's 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 weird and it's unusual, and it's but see, just... that's the thing. I don't think it's camp, and you're, you're, like an alien in a KKK uniform, and later another alien in a baseball uniform redoing the scene from ET when ET and the, and Drew Barrymore screaming. I mean, that is camp. That is that has well, to be a, the 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 one pitcher like throwing the balls into the cactus. I mean, this is I, I that's what that's what it defines. That's that's one of the definitions for me. Again, I don't I, think camp is bad. I mean, well, I, I mean, I think that, that we can have a discussion about camp because, you know, o- over the years doing doing Trek About and tuning in with you, uh, you know, I think it has become, you know, pretty clear to, to me and you in the audience that you are much more of a proponent of camp as a critical analysis tool than I am. I, I don't find it that interesting to talk about camp. I, I actually think it's a little unfair to what you're criticizing to just label it as camp and walk away from it well you know certainly yeah does this have some campy elements sure but i also think that that david duchovny is trying to engage with real issues in this episode and i think it does it a disservice to just throw your hands up and say well it's camp but to me i don't 
again, I, I don't use camp as a derogatory term. And again, I see camp as a way that um, as a mode of criticism, uh, uh, again, the the prototypical example of camp to me is Divine, who is such a hilarious, over-the-top parody of The Suburban Housewife. It's cr- it, 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 John Waters' films, especially the earlier ones, are critiquing heteronormativity in that way and using camp as as that mode of satire. Um, and so, again, when I say something is camp, I'm meaning it is satirical in that way. There is something that it is critiquing. It's not just over the top for its own sake. It's because it finds something ridiculous and it's heightening that ridiculousness. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly w- don't disagree with you about that. And I, I, I think that John Walter is a great example of, of camp that I think is done um, in good faith. If you yes, can use that of course, word for camp. And there's bad and camp he and knows what camp. he's doing. I I don't know if David Duchovny actually understands what camp even is. I mean, charitably speaking, he's a white straight cis dude. And, you know, camp has always been something that that marginalized groups who make art. Uh, use in order to uh, satirize the the dominant culture, as you say. But I don't see any of that in this episode. You know, I I think that a hallmark of camp is is sort of like a a bad taste, right? And Mm. I don't see any of that in this episode. I I think that David Duchovny, for, for better and for worse, is taking the subject matter that he deals with in the unnatural very seriously. And and it's almost it's almost too serious in some places i think he thinks this is much more important than it actually is because after all when we boil it down this is a rather goofy episode of a science fiction television series from the 90s but i don't know i still have to admire the the effort yeah i i i i guess i guess so um you sound very convinced (laughs) I don't I know. So. I, I I think the episode is a little more about baseball than I want it to be. I mean, certainly it is using baseball as a metaphor for uh, the black experience in America, as well as and using the the aliens as a metaphor for that as well. But there is a little too much, you know. Life is like baseball, kind of stuff, which I I get cold on that. Um, Again, the reason that I loved the baseball metaphors in DS9 were that they were constantly used as a metaphor for Cisco himself. All of the qualities of baseball were the way – this is how Cisco thinks. This is how he uh, goes towards things tactically. This is how he's going to plan his, plan his eventual winning of the Dominion War. And, of course, the baseball used as a placeholder for him when he's out of DS9 – I liked that because it was a metaphor that was constantly enriched over the course of the series. Um, And this is the first time we are seeing Mulder into baseball. And I'm getting the sense this is one of David Duchovny's personal interests. I think he wrote a novel about baseball. Uh, It does feel – I guess I'm feeling not terribly charitable towards David Duchovny for some reason. Um and maybe it is because of what the behind the scenes things we've been talking where uh his attitude in some ways might be responsible for the i mean this seems like a way to keep the talent happy and it's i it seems so vanity in a way 
Well, it certainly is, but I but I think that that in a season that has had a lot of of what you could consider to to be vanity things, in a season that has been mm. overly comedic to a degree that n- no season of the X Files ha- has been so far. I think in a season where it has become increasingly obvious that um, a lot of the people on the writing staff don't know what to do with the show anymore. Not not necessarily to say they're bored with it or they're actively trying to sabotage oh, no. it, but I think that they just. They don't want to tell the types of stuff that we got, like in Trevor, for instance. They're just not, they're fundamentally not interested in that stuff anymore. It's very akin, I think, to the criticism that we make of Star Trek Voyager, where, you know, a lot of times we talk about Star Trek Voyager and we say, yeah, this is fine, but I don't know that I needed seven more seasons of TNG. If I wanted to watch TNG, I'll just go watch TNG. And I, in 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 a similar sense, I get the impression that a lot of the writing staff of the X-Files in the sixth season have had that kind of reaction. They're like, well, if you want to see a season two episode of the X-Files, you know, the VHS tapes are available for purchase, you know, go to your local blockbuster video and rent them or whatever people did in 1999. But I, I, I just, I don't know. I just have to keep going back to the fact that, that yes, I think that a lot of this episode um, is vanity, but, but it works for me. And, you know, let I mean, let's talk about the baseball because I honestly feel the, the you know what I'm getting from you is that a lot of your problem with this episode is due to the fact that it is so heavily about baseball. It is so heavily invested in this sport yeah. that you fundamentally do not care about, and, and it- I, I think that is fair. I mean, I just I I have those sorts of reactions to certain types of stories as well you know for famously for instance i am extremely cold toward any sort of mafia stuff i I just Mm. fundamentally find it boring and i find it very difficult to engage with it on a critical level in good faith but i don't like baseball but i don't i guess i just don't have that reaction to its use in this episode because it feels natural haha it feels organic to me you know i think that that you know if you're going to have someone like david duchovny write an episode of the x-files he should write an episode that is animated by one of his core interests and baseball obviously is and i think that is fair to say and baseball is a particularly good sport to tell a story about uh race in america again if that's the theme that he wants to tackle and you know, kudos for him for making an attempt, honestly. Um, whether or not it was good is another story, but, you know, he is trying to tell something about the black American experience as he, a white guy, understands it. And baseball is a fine arena for that to take place in because there is a lot of baseball and black history uh, resonances. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what this episode is coming down to is is an examination of how marginalized groups in America have traditionally uh, gained some sort of respectability yeah. or, or, or gained access to uh, dominant culture, dominant society. And, and this is a very real way. And this is a very real way to this day. You know, let's yeah. not forget that certainly this episode is taking place in 1947, but it was written and aired in 1999. Yeah. And we are talking about it in 2018. There is a fault line in American society in regards to African-Americans playing sports that have been there for decades, if not a century. 
And we are seeing that right now with the division between the ways in which the the NFL and the NBA have been handling a lot of issues surrounding things like Black Lives Matter and police brutality and and those sorts of issues and and, and protesting that kind of yeah. thing. And frankly, and, mu- mu- and, music being another arena and one which is you know become again becoming more politicized and more aware as as black artists become more prominent. And, you know, I don't know that the now saying all that, of course, I don't know that the unnatural has much to say about that. I think it's it's well, it's a little facile. It's a little of a shallow read of it, I think. I mean, I don't think David Duchovny is like one of the great thinkers of our time or anything like that, but he's trying something. I mean, this is coming from that place in 1999 where we all thought that racism was done. Again, this this is the – it is one thing to compl- to look and say, yes, in the past, things were terrible. Before civil rights, things were legitimately bad. And even afterwards, there was a struggle. But, you know, it's 1999 now. It's 2000 now. And all of that's certainly done by now. So let's tell a story about the past. I mean, that, th- there, there's some of that in that too. And this is something that, frankly, I'm seeing all over in television of that era. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's true, and I, I think that you, you do have to read this as as a nostalgia piece in some respects, or or it, well, maybe not nostalgia is the wrong word. I think it, it's a little bit of and a patting ourselves on the back, right? Like, look at how bad things were back then, and it, by comparison, this is how much things are better now. And yeah. is that true? Well, obviously not, but. It, it it is something that I think the episode like that is a valid criticism to me. The episode could engage with that more, you know. Yeah. Like I said earlier, it's a very surface read of the situation, but I still think it's okay. Like I don't, I think it's okay to remind white people that racial minorities had a bad time, yeah. right? I think I think that's no. all right, and if it gets them thinking about how racial minorities or minorities in general of any stripe are treated now, Um, you know, especially in an age when, you know, a month ago, Anthony Kennedy retired. uh, I I think that that's important. Yeah. I mean, you do have, you do have assholes who will look and say, you know, slavery wasn't actually that bad for people. And so you do need as many accounts and remembrances. I mean, this is the never forget the Holocaust thing, right? Like you, 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 these need, these things are passing out of living memory or have passed out of living memory already. And so it is very easy to mitigate and, and explain away and rationalize at that point. Um, I think another part of it is X-Files, please stop trying to make Arthur Dales happen. They, they they so badly want Arthur Dales that they are giving us his identically named brother and they are also threatening that if this one doesn't work, we can meet his identically named sister in Goldfish. Like th- th- this is – they have done nothing with Arthur Dales and I don't know why they keep returning to that well. See, I actually disagree with you. I, I think that David – you have to think about who put that in the episode, right? It was David Duchovny. And I think that – Part of the joke there is that okay. David Duchovny is realizing that Arthur Dales doesn't matter, right? That 
they created this character it didn't go anywhere yeah, he came yeah, back yeah. for another episode nothing happened with him he was a waste of time Every, he was a waste of everyone's time I mean the actor got a check and that's wonderful for him uh, but aside from that he had almost no impact on the X-Files and never will yeah and here is David Duchovny throwing Arthur Dales this kind of like deep cut in the X-Files mythology, this character that appeared twice and nobody really cared about, uh, and saying, well, it doesn't, he, he literally doesn't matter because, yeah, I'm looking for Arthur Dales, but I'm not Arthur Dales, but I am Arthur Dales because I'm his identical twin brother with the same name. I actually love okay. that a lot. All right. No, that, that does make sense. I guess, again, it's making me wish for a more careful version of the show that actually took him into consideration. I mean, imagine where we have some alternate, we have peppered in Dale's episodes where he begins to investigate the origins of the conspiracy. And that's how it gets revealed. I mean, that, that, uh, that might've been interesting. There was so much more that they could have used the, the character who first created the X-Files and they just didn't do anything. I guess it's a sign of the it's a sign of how this show was written and the fact that no one was doing this at this time, but that I guess ultimately I feel like while there are a lot of really good episodes of The X-Files, it is very dated in a lot of ways. It is not a show that has kind of transcended its time, uh particularly in terms of its themes, but in terms of the way it story tells, I, I don't like the pacing of it. That's fair. Well, again, greater than the the sum of its parts. I can definitely, I do agree with that. It does. I because I can never say it doesn't deserve its reputation. It's very obvious why the show was a hit for so long and why it did capture so much. Well, moving aside from that, because I, I think that, you know, we, we've talked about that a lot, and I don't know if we're necessarily going to say anything new about yeah, yeah. that, although we can also talk about it next week when we uh, have the last episode of Tuning In. But the other thing that I actually really like about this episode is in a season that has not treated Scully very well mm. in a lot of cases— and will not treat Scully very well very soon, as in in Three of a Kind. I think David Duchovny gets Gillian Anderson. I think he gets the Mulder-Scully dynamic. I think there's so much joy on her face when they're playing around early in the episode. Yeah, when they're wrestling and with the ice then, cream. Yeah, with the ice cream. And yeah, okay, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a gender jab about women don't eat ice cream and she's eating this weird, like horrible thing that sounds disgusting. This tofu frozen fruity, whatever (laughs) it is, but there's a lot of fun in those scenes. There's a lot of fun at the end of this, at the end of the episode when they're hitting the balls, they're, they're shagging the balls and it's not a sex joke. Get your mind out of the gutter. But I don't know. I just no. this episode is is sweet in a weird way. In an episode that is about an alien who isn't able to live up to what he actually wants to do in his life. And it's got this like sense of magical realism about it that yeah. I I really like. You know, I'm not necessarily someone who likes a lot of magical realist stuff, but for some reason this works for me. Well, number one, it go it, 
I, yeah, I really loved the transitions, like where they're watching on television the story that Dales is telling, or the little boy who's dressed like you know a guy from a kid from the from the nineteen thirties, um, fifties, sixties, forties, late forties, kids. Nineteen forty-seven. That's the other part of the joke, is of course it it's takes place in right, Roswell, New Mexico, Roswell. in nineteen forty-seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that is cute. That is a nice framing device, and it's one which does dovetail very nicely into the X-Files long-running obsession with stories and how they're told and who is telling them. Um, And again, this episode directly says, trust the tale, not the teller, and this story could very easily be the ramblings of a drunken old man. It could have some tie into reality. It could not. It doesn't really matter. Um... What matters is the lessons learned about baseball and life from the from the experience. But, I mean, you're right. I do agree that this is some of the most relaxed we see Scully and Mulder together. It's almost a hangout episode. We don't get too many hangout episodes on the X-Files. And what they're doing is so absurdly low stakes. It's not even anything that's... This is not like it's a... Arthur Dales is telling a story that has ties to the present. No, this is all over and done with. Even this era of the mythology is kind of over and done with. Uh, and yeah, so it's, you know, and again, the standout scenes are they're digging around in the archives and having a very boring Saturday and amusing each other because they, for once, have nobody chasing him, them, have nobody dying, have nobody, nothing really big or dramatic happening. So... It's nice to see them able to have fun. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, one minor quibble you could make with it, of course, is that once again, we have Mulder, uh, you know, trying to get Scully involved in something that Mulder likes, but Mulder never seems to really care what Scully likes, you know, things like that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it feel like I feel like I'm looking for something to criticize the episode on. I, I just find this episode to be extraordinarily well done. And you know, we haven't talked really much at all about the alien stuff. We haven't talked about the alien bounty hunter. I mean, I don't care. Yeah, right? no, I'm like with I you. think that in a lot of ways, you know, what you were saying earlier about trust the tale, not the teller, is that did any of this actually happen? I mean, I don't know. I think that in a lot of ways, this is a. You know, you talked before, I think last week, about sort of a, a you know, a, a fan thick version <laughs> of the X-Files. And I feel like this is kind of a continuation of that or even maybe more of a strong, uh, 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 an, you know, a strong example of that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's nice because Mulder has obviously met with hundreds of kooks who don't who are just telling these rambling stories and that don't add up to anything that even Mulder recognizes have no value and it's fun to see one of those I mean they really haven't gotten as much comedic mileage out of that kind of thing as they could have again you can see every so often there just being a five minute scene of Mulder talking to a random guest star who's just telling this wacky alien story and you get Mulder doesn't even need any lines. He can just roll his eyes and say, yeah, okay. And it'll be hilarious. But, and, and in a lot of ways, doesn't this episode feel like, or read as a repudiation of travelers? Like this feels to me like David Duchovny saying, well, no, here's what the origin story of the X-Files should be. (laughs) 
Maybe, yeah. I mean, Travelers was so uh, uh, calculatedly boring and cold and clinical. Yeah. And this episode is none of those things. Yeah, it's true. It takes visual delight in this. I mean, when you do a show that's set in the past, you do it because it's going to have panache. It won't look like any of the other episodes. We're going to have the main cast wearing funny clothing. And again, Star Trek milks that as much as it can, more successfully than others sometimes, but that was the... um, uh, That's the joy of the Vic Fontaine episodes, for example. So... Travelers didn't really luxuriate in the past as much, and this does, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and maybe the last thing we'll mention before we move on to, to Three of a Kind is uh, this is one of my bugaboos in period fiction. Um, there is no way in hell that they would have made a long-distance telephone call from Roswell, New Mexico to Macon, Georgia in 1947, they would have sent a telegram. <laughs> like, that call would have cost, like, $100. Well, they have FBI resources. They weren't on the FBI. They were local police oh, yeah. par- departments in small towns. Shit, that's right. I forgot about because it's not Arthur Dales. It's his brother, Arthur Dales. I don't even think they would have uh, used the telephone if there was the FBI chasing down someone who just assassinated a president in 1947. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, let's move on to Three of a Kind, which is the last Lone Gunman episode that we are sadly or perhaps not going to have because we are ending the show as of next week. It's fine. I liked it. <laughs> I like it, too. But as a... Again, this uh, this obviously wasn't intended as a send-off to Lone Gunman, but it is for us the send-off. And, I mean, watching this, I get why they thought the Lone Gunman could have made a show. Because yeah, this is—I would watch a series that's them doing, like, little heists and it's government conspiracy mysteries and stuff like that. And, I mean, this is— I think I really do like this tone as refreshing because this seems a more revitalized version of the show just based on we have a completely different cast doing kind of different stuff. And, I mean, it feels like a backdoor pilot in its way. I would not be surprised if that was the initial intention for this episode. I don't think it was. So the the Lone Gunman TV series that aired between, like, I think March and june of 2001 um it, you know aired for 13 episodes i i, I think it you know it, it's possible i don't know i mean but uh, I, I don't i don't think it was and i think more to, i think more it, it it's it's more related to the lone gunman tv series in that i think that the first lone gunman heavy episode from last season was not just a flash in the pan that they could recapture that sort of magic. And that was kind of getting them on that path of, Oh, you know, maybe we actually could do this as a TV series down the line. Maybe the other way Um, around. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, it's a fun episode. I enjoy it. I like the lone gunman. I, I am fascinated to see what they're up to, uh, when they're not being called on by Mulder and Scully. Um, but it, I don't know. I don't know that it does enough. It seems weird because I, I was like defending the unnatural um, for, for precisely the opposite reason. But I don't know that it justifies its existence that well. I, I and, and see, 
as a comedy episode, as if the X-Files wants to be a comedy show that is talking about government conspiracies and it still wants to have action thriller elements, I mean, I think this is a really good version of that show. The main cast is, you know, it, this is, the, the main trio is, they are very funny. They are very good at playing these characters. They're good at putting these characters into situations that are a little ridiculous. I mean, I, I really hope that in the Lone Gunman show, Frohiki has increasingly more elaborate disguises every time. Because every time he's in a new outfit, I think it's funny. Um... I like that I like the the cross between them being bumbling and actually figuring this out. I think it's a good tone of it. And it's a version of a mythology that could be less have less crap in it. I mean this this is I don't know. They are desperately looking for a direction for the X-Files to go in and I don't think putting in more Lun Gunman would have been a bad decision. No, I don't think so either. I mean, um, I've never seen the Lone Gunman TV series. It's actually on my Netflix queue, my my Netflix my yeah. Netflix discs queue because I don't believe it's available anywhere else. Um, but I'm car- I'm going to watch it. I'm I'm going to move it up uh, in my queue um, after next week when we yeah, uh, yeah. you know finish finish the the series because well finish tuning in, um, not finish the series because I want to see it and I don't know why they picked 2001 to do it. I I think yeah. that. That was Again, almost the end of the X Files. The, the X Files ended in two thousand two, so maybe they were yeah. like, "All right, well, we're going into this season of the X Files, knowing this is going to be our last season. It's the ninth season. We're running out of steam, <laughs> yeah. so so let's let's try and get this Lone Gunman spinoff off the ground." Yeah. And I would imagine this is mostly what it's like, um, but I don't know. I mean. It, I feel like I don't have a lot of like critical analysis of this episode because like it's, it's fine. I like the lone gunman. They work well together. I think the opening scene where Frohickey and uh, what's the guy's name? The guy with the beard? I always Byers. forget. John Sterold Byers. That that that's really fun. You know, it gets a little bit of like, uh, you know, sort of like hackers yeah. kind of thing, you know, going on. Um, it's in Vegas. There is some... Oh, was Ocean's Eleven the movie out at this point? The remake, of course. No, that was released in 2001. Okay, okay, it was shortly after this. Not, that, I mean the original, of course. Yeah, not that, you know, that was the only, you know, Casino Heist has been a genre for decades, and, you know, I could see The X-Files. Yeah, The X-Files is obviously having a lot of fun doing Casino Heist. Yeah, because I actually, this this is a minor, um, a minor criticism, but I think that, uh, you know, in a season that has very often um, suffered from being yeah. in Los Angeles in a season that because I, I actually watching three of a kind, I put my finger on why I think the X-Files look really went downhill in the sixth season. And it's while I was watching the the opening dream sequence of three of a kind, which is fine. I don't think there's yeah. anything that interesting in there, um, although it is interesting to me that like this, you know, hacker guy that that is trying to bring down the federal government like his dream is the most sort of like middle class white suburban dream you could ever have which also does link up with where he came from right because when they got when he got enmeshed in this whole thing 10 years ago he was that guy he was this like mid-level functionary working for the fcc but there is also the understanding with him that 
again, this is in his monologue. He's talking about how the assassination of JFK was the moment that everything went to hell. That's where he's tracing everything bad going from. And in a way, this is a dream of that prosperity for everybody. Of course, that's what it looks like for him. Uh, but I don't know. It, 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 it's a – he comes off as very almost – I mean he's very optimistic about this. He's He really – there's almost a naivete to him, which – Yeah, I was going to say it comes across as naive to me for sure. Yeah, but um, in a very benevolent way like he – thinks that there is a way that all the all of this corruption can be rooted out and that everybody can be okay in the end and maybe we can do something to fix up all this mess and which is what drives him that he's he he is somebody who is never going to say well that's it I'm giving up because he does believe that good will win again another thing that connects him and Mulder yeah well I want to talk more about that but I I want to um talk a little bit more about the look of it because what I realized in watching the dream sequence that opens this episode is that um, we know what Los Angeles looks like. So many television mm. series are filmed there that it has become a very boring look. And mm. the X-Files looked very good when it was being filmed in Vancouver because at that time, not many television series were filmed in Vancouver mm. and it just fit the the tone of the series so well. And now it's just like, oh, we're just watching anything that's filmed in Los Angeles. It's it's disappointing. Yeah. And now I'm going to contradict myself because I think that The Unnatural and Three of a Kind were, I think, you know, a handful of episodes this season. I would include Drive in that, for example, um, that used the Southern California location very well. You know, The Unnatural obviously wasn't filmed in Roswell, but used the location in Los Angeles to great effect. And Three of a Kind was obviously at least some exterior shots filmed in Las Vegas. And, of course, you can do that because Las Vegas is four hours away from Los Angeles. So, yeah, it's very I wish that they had figured out more quickly how to use that location to their advantage. But it seems like they're figuring it out. So, so good job, X-Files. Yeah, and I would say that's a important part of the X-Files because, again... It's at its best when it's showing us these weird, weird pockets of America, and we are a very geographically diverse country. It's, every state that they go to should look a little different. Now, I do want to talk more about about Byers because he is what what sort of really is at the heart of this of this episode, and. You know, the other lone gunmen are are just nice people. I mean, I think Frohickey gets a nice chance to shine in this episode when he rescues Scully from possibly being raped. Uh, and we will talk about the way this episode treats Scully because I am not on board for it. But this is really Byers' episode in a lot of ways. This is him. I think, in a, you know, in a weird way, that this may not be an analogy that's going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. This is almost like, the X-Files Dark Page moment where, you know, if you're familiar with TNG, like Dark Page was a seventh season episode of that series that revealed that Loaxana Troy, this character, had this sort of like dark secret mm. that had affected her life. And that's, that, that is something that is very hard to pull off. And I feel like in a way this episode is, is that kind of thing for buyers because it is recontextualizing the buyers that we have seen in the past five seasons of the show as someone who is like deeply haunted by the yeah. loss and kidnapping of this woman that he barely knew. And 
to that to the actor's credit and to the episode's credit, I think it it pulls it off very well. Yeah, I because I think the character at least in the way he dresses, I mean, he is fastidiously neat and very well put together and that gives the impression of somebody who really doesn't let on what he's thinking too often. And he is knocked for a loop by finally seeing, uh, what's her name? Suzanne? Lee? Yeah. Suzanne Modeski. Um, he, he's thrown for a loop by seeing her. He can show himself a bit to Langley and Frohiki and, you know, but it makes sense that we haven't seen him, going too emotional about it to Mulder, which is primarily where we've seen him. Right, exactly. I mean, this, this in a lot of ways, this episode is what do the lone gunmen do? What do the, yeah. what are the lone gunmen like when Mulder, when the main characters of our television series are not around? And this is what they do. Huh. So I want to talk more about, so Vince Gilligan and, and uh, Spotnitz wrote this episode. And I, I believe that they oh, also wrote was the, the first was it Sheevan? I think Maybe so. it was Sheevan. That's what I wrote. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. It actually was Sheevan. I got an S name stuck in my head. Um, so John, John. So Vince Gilligan and John Sheevan wrote this episode. I, I believe they also wrote the first X Files Lone Gunman episode as well, uh, which we very much liked from the fifth season. The name is escaping me right now, um, and that was a Mulder episode. Like it wasn't, he appeared in yeah. it, right? And that was, Scully didn't appear in it at all because it took place in 1989 before Mulder had met Scully. And this episode doesn't feature Mulder at all. Well, it features his voice very briefly. Yeah, it took him two uh, minutes and, to and, record. <laughs> yeah. But features Scully fairly heavily for an episode that is focused on the lone gunman. And we have talked before, I think about the, the sexual politics of the X-Files and, I am. Fi- I mean, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on John Sheevan or Vince Gilligan. They're they're probably both fine people, um, but I feel very uncomfortable with the way in which this episode writes both Suzanne Medeski and Scully, because Suzanne Medeski is very much damseled in this episode, and it just feels like. Yeah, she's not really a character. And so the pieces of information that we are getting, the ways in which they are establishing this character are are very sort of like shortcutty in a way that I find a little problematic. Yeah, I mean, because she lets uh, the dad from Hocus Pocus get the drop on her, it's only because of the intervention of the lone gunman that she's able to escape alive and for somebody who we're told is so brilliant who knows that people are after her for her to have this one spot blind spot and be completely unprepared for it is i mean how many times have we talked about voyager episodes where uh janeway lets it look like they're getting the drop on her at the end she reveals that no i've had a plan all along i foresaw you that you might betray me so I'm putting this plan into motion, and I love that every single time. And I don't know. I I I wish Medeski had seen had foreseen it a little more because all of the signs were there that you know, gee, it's maybe possible. And frankly, something which goes a little more into the themes of the show that even after years of working with somebody and falling in love with them and getting ready to get married, you still can't 100 percent trust them when you're in this world. 
Yeah, because it makes her really come across as stupid fundamentally. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, like why would buyers be so attracted to this woman? You know, I, I think that in a lot of ways well, the episode kind of, of of whiffs that a little bit. Like and 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 also the fact that again she comes across as stupid. Like she was just waiting for ten years for the lone gunman to rescue her. I, I don't. I don't know what we're supposed to make of this. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I could see a bit in the two of them almost are attracted to each other's naivete and optimism. They both seem to believe that justice and truth will out eventually. She thinks that she's going to be able to go public with this drug, and that will help it and he's believing that she'll be okay and they aren't going to find her and and all of those things and it's a good luck to them and I hope it works but and the X-Files I would not say is a cynical show but I don't know maybe just reality is making us a little too cynical for that again I said it was a kind of dated show maybe that sense of hope is just seems very naive to us now yeah, and I and I think that that you know you I I find it interesting that that you don't have the same problem with Star Trek, but I think Star Trek is helped by, of course, not being set in contemporary America. Yeah, and I would say that Star Trek is less realistically political in a way. It is certainly political in the sense that again, Federation is a socialist future and all of that, but it's not actually dealing with you know well the. The FBI and the CIA conspired to assassinate President Kennedy because he was soft on leftist causes, and this is how a far right wing conspiracy got to. I mean, that's a little more explicitly political. That is true, and and then I guess the other part of that as well, the other female character that that, that features prominently in the episode, Scully. Um, I said that I'm trying to treat Vince Gilligan and John Sheban with some modicum of of giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I don't know, man. Like they keep doing this to Scully, and I don't know what they're thinking, but this is not like it's not a good look for Scully. But I don't blame Scully. I don't blame Gillian Anderson for any of this. Like I blame the writers of this episode for putting her in this position. And no, I you know I. I think Gillian Anderson did a very funny job with a problematic scene, if that makes sense. With very, yeah, I mean, like, essentially, the episode is like strongly hinting that if Frohiki hadn't come along yeah. and rescued her, that Scully would have been raped. And well, like, she would have ended up. She would have ended up in Michael McKean's bedroom. And I will say, the punchline of him existing, him being in this episode is the closest thing to making Dreamland worthwhile because I did laugh at that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, f- I actually <laughs> forgot he was in this episode, but it also comes across as extraordinarily mean-spirited to me. <laughs> like, we didn't need to see that guy again, and it just seems like... You know, I think a lot of times people will ascribe bad motives to oh. creative choices that they don't necessarily think are the best, and I'm not saying that. I mean, obviously, I think that the people behind this episode and Dreamland thought that Dreamland was funny because yeah. they wrote Dreamland. So, okay. Like, Michael McKean is a very funny guy, and he's a good actor. So if you're going to get him again, sure, why not? But I didn't think, and you didn't think, that Dreamland was was worth the paper it was printed on or the celluloid that it was filmed yeah. on. 
And so to put Michael McKean in this episode to be like, ha ha, remember when Michael McKean spent two episodes sexually harassing Scully? Well, now he's sexually menacing her as well. And you're like, all right, thanks. Uh, uh, again, I think in this is something where in 1999, it came off as, oh, Scully's acting very silly, and oh, she's smoking again. And remember how Scully smokes when she's drugged? Ha ha ha. And uh, that's, I think, as seriously as we're going to take it. It's just, uh, you know, and in 2018, when this lady was drugged and raped is a story that we are hearing a lot. Uh, It's what... Buffy the Vampire Slayer calls a funny aneurysm moment. You know, (laughs) it's just like, all right, now, but now this is happening a lot, and we know this is happening a lot, and this is not just her doing wacky antics. Like, imagine the version of Scully that's, you know, playing poker and just, like, betting everything, you know, zombie-like, but just winning. Like that's that's yeah. how you, or, or you know she's running she's going through the casinos and just playing all these slots like that could be the physical comedy that is not based around sexual menace but is still based around when Scully is drugged she's acting out of character which is very you know wild and loud and party and enjoying I don't yeah know. yeah I mean this is something that goes along with with the X Files in general which is playing around with the idea that. Um, Scully in her off time is very different from Scully in her, in her professional life. Yeah. But like, all right, sure. Um, I mean, I guess the other thing too is that, you know, to wrap back around to, to the entire episode's plot, like leaving all that aside, I think it's pretty effective. At least the yeah. ending of it is. And it plays around very nicely. And you get this nice little conspiracy thing going on with Suzanne Medeski faking her own death. And then she makes the incre- incredibly questionable decision to immediately let her like homicidal fiance know that she's not actually dead, which seems like an extraordinarily questionable decision to me. Not, Uh, you know, really sure. Again, I have anything to say about it, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, certainly she didn't think that he would pull a gun on her right then and there. And it's not as if, you know, it's not as if the threat to her in that situation is directly from him. It's from the, uh, the other guy that's, you know, friends with the lone gunman. So, sure. Um, I guess they well, feel friend, that friends with them is a little bit of <laughs> red herring. I think, yeah, yeah. But it's also the kind of thing that like, yes, leave the room, but be in the next room. So that way, if anything happens, you're right there. And, you know, again, I don't trust this guy. Just be nearby just in case that's precautions anybody would take. Yeah, they yeah, don't. For sure. You know, so that way, when she's actually, sh- you know, when he's actually shot, they don't, and she, they manage to drug her. You know, they they're caught off guard. They should not be caught off guard in this scenario, no matter how sensitive their discussion is. Well, we'll wrap this episode up with just a couple minor things that I want to briefly mention. So, so number one, of course, is that uh, the the actor John Billingsley that plays the friend, I think yeah. his name is supposed to be Timmy. Um, the, the friend of the guy who gets murdered by being thrown in, in front of a bus or whatever happens yeah. there. The villain, uh, yeah. Richard? Yeah? We'll be seeing him again. Where? Because he plays a character on Star Trek Enterprise. Wow! And he is the only character 
on Star Trek Enterprise. <laughs> I'm kind of exaggerating. No, so so you told me there was a dog, and there's a dog in Scott Bayo, and that's all I know about Enterprise. So I don't think he was Scott Bayo, so he's the dog, I assume. And the other thing I want to briefly mention, I think this is a joke, but the conference that everyone is there to attend oh, is yeah. DEFCON. Yeah. And DEFCON is very much not this type of conference. It is not the defense conference. It is a conference of hackers. So I guess it was supposed to be like DEFCON 1. Oh, no. I don't think they knew that DEFCON exists and they thought that, oh, like we'll call it DEFCON because DEFCON is the thing. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know. I think they knew it existed. I, I think it's think- a joke. It's not a funny joke, <laughs> but it's a joke. I mean, these are the people that wrote Dreamland. Do you think they have a good <laughs> grasp on what's funny? All right. Well, we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on the two episodes we just talked about, Unnatural or Three of a Kind, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are there for another week. Not that we're posting anything, but still follow us if you want. Tuning in show is our username in all those places. All right, next week, the last episode of Tuning In ever. Not that we are ruling out a return in the future, but don't count on it. We're going to be doing a little bit of a different thing. So I ran this idea by Richard, and he agreed because he usually agrees with me because I'm the producer of the show. Um, that we are just going to do one episode next week. Next week, we are going to talk about the penultimate episode of season six of the X-Files entitled Field Trip. I think it will become very obvious why next week when we talk about it. Um, But also, it was because, frankly, I didn't want to end this podcast on a cliffhanger. And the last episode of this season is a cliffhanger. So that's it. We'll see you next week for the last episode of Tuning In where we talk about the X-Files field trip. Mac, why do you...